Well, when you come to the 15th chapter, you know, the 14th and the first part of the 15th kind of Paul is dealing uh, with, with that need to put your brother first and love your brother uh, in situations, the weak and the strong. And he comes to verse 14, and now he begins to shut it down. And really, chapter 15, this verse 14 to the end of the chapter, is really the closing of the 15th chapter. I mean, the book of Romans, the 16th chapter is a bunch of salutations, greetings, uh, mentioning people. There's some cool stuff in there uh, we'll talk about next week. Uh, some of the things you've probably never heard before, if you do a careful study of the 16th chapter that we as Baptists might struggle with a little bit concerning women in ministry. But uh, there's some good stuff there. But he, he begins his conclusion this way, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given to me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified, he says, by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul had written a, a letter to a church he had never visited. He had not started. He had not visited. Uh, we'll see in a little bit kind of why he wrote that letter. And in doing so, he exercised his option as an apostle uh, set apart by Christ, especially an apostle to the Gentiles. Just because he's an apostle to the Gentiles doesn't mean he can't comment on other things. He can. But he really wanted to, to, to say some things to help from the very beginning to understand about sin and that the Jews were not privileged, um, that both Gentiles and Jews were sinful in the eyes of God, all needed to come to faith. Uh, he talked extensively in chapter 19 and 11 about how God brought the Gentiles in. The Gentiles shouldn't be conceded because he'd bring the Jews back in. So he kind of needs to sum all this up, dealing with all of them. And so he says, this is what I want you to understand, brothers. I am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. In other words, there's nothing wrong with your fellowship. These are not earth-shattering problems. You're filled with knowledge. And you're able to admonish or teach one another. In other words, y'all are perfectly capable of teaching. Part of the, the part of the focus of Scripture, and we, we forget sometimes what Scripture does, is that Scripture not only instructs us, but sometimes Scripture has to admonish us. Sometimes Scripture has to rebuke us to some degree. Sometimes it has to advise us. Sometimes Scripture has to warn us. I was reading over when Paul's very last letter, 2 Timothy, which he wrote to that young protege of his who was basically pastoring the church at Ephesus in the very last chapter. He told them, Timothy, sometimes you've got to rebuke as well as reprove and teach and encourage folks through the word of God. It's part of And so he says, you know, I know you're all capable of doing that. But nonetheless, here were things Paul, because he's an apostle, he had to do some things. And he had to share some things. And so we ought to remember when we come to the scriptures, we're coming to the works of apostles inspired by the Holy Spirit. Some of the things they tell us are difficult for us. Some things are easy to understand, easy to grasp. Sometimes we read things and it causes us to say, hmm, I may not be living up to what they expect. I find myself quite often having to do that. And, and, and reading even passages that I have read many times and studied and preached from. Sometimes having to say, Lord, I need to conform more to what your word says and less to what I want to conform to or through. And so he says, 
You are capable of admonishing. You're full of goodness. But I have written very boldly to you on some points, he says. And that's the key. To remind you again because of the grace God was giving to me. So I wrote to you not because you didn't know, but I needed to remind you. You know, um, sometimes we, we think when we're, we've been a follower of Christ a long time, and we hear lots of sermons on salvation. And I preach a lot of sermons that deal with salvation, evangelism, all that. In large part because we have a lot of lost people come to our church. <clears throat> but I have also found over the years, interesting enough, that followers of Christ need to repeatedly hear the gospel message over and over and over again because we never quite conform to it the way we should. It's always good to hear the gospel at one to remind us of what's at stake. And that God in Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, having saved us, we praise Him. And we honor Him. But also, that simple, simple message reminds us of what we should conform to. Easter should always be a time for all of us to not only worship and honor the Christ whom God raised from the dead. It should be a time for us as well to renew our commitment to the Christ whom God raised from the dead. What he did for us should always move us. So Paul says, I remind you again of things, in part because I am a minister of the gospel of the Gentiles. We need to remember we're writing to the Gentiles. We're reaching out to them. At this time, the church is becoming Gentile. I, I see some strange things written sometimes about the makeup of the church. The church was becoming predominantly Gentile, especially in that part of the world. He says, I am a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, as a priest of the gospel, so that the Gentiles may come acceptable and they're sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, the Gentiles may come to Christ, sanctified, made holy by the Spirit of God. Who is it that sanctifies us? The Holy Spirit of God. Who is it that makes us acceptable to the Lord? It's the Holy Spirit. So all of us need to come under that cleansing, sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit of God. By the way, I have my phone up here because... Our countdown clock busted, and if you don't want me to go over, I need to know how much time I have. Joe wants me to go over, Brian doesn't, so I have a clock there. Our guys are talented because we were rehearsing Friday, and one of the bulbs, was it this one? The bulb for that blew out. That screen was gone. And so they had to take a bulb from the countdown screen and apply it to this screen. They had to get ladders. They were hanging from the ceiling. They were on each other's shoulders. I don't know what they did. From what I hear, it looked like a circus, which I can understand because I've often felt they're a bunch of clowns anyways. But beside the point, those guys got that job done. And you, did, you guys who came here did not know all of that stuff was going on. And they had to put me a little clock in the back so I know how much time I had because not so much so I don't go over, but Brian's always going over in his music as part of it. So therefore, in Christ Jesus, he says, I have found reason for boasting in these things for pain to God. In Christ, I boast. You know, we're not supposed to boast. We're supposed to be humble, and we should. Paul, you ever read Paul? Paul boasts a lot. You know that? He's always telling you things have been done. And he's always doing it in Christ. Let me tell you, sometimes you've got to remind people what's been going on, don't you? So I just told you how many people we had Sunday. We boasted a little bit. That's okay. You know why it's okay? Because God blessed us. We're honoring God. I'm not giving you credit. I'm not taking credit. You can give me credit if you want, but I won't take it. But God gets to, we want, that's, if we don't boast in the Lord, we're, we're missing out on honoring God. It's okay to boast in God a little bit. 
Don't take the credit for it. Let's say God's doing this stuff, and we're excited about it. So I'm boasting in things pertaining to God, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles to the word and So Paul's saying, look, I'm not talking about what I did, but Christ did it, but he used me so that Gentiles would come to salvation. So what Paul is saying is, look, Gentiles are coming to Jesus. Now, there's other reasons they're doing it. He's not the only one, but he has gone, and Christ has sent him. And Paul says, what I have done, I have done for the glory of Christ. Christ worked through that, and Christ brought people. Now, Christ is the one who does it. All right? We don't, we don't win anybody to Jesus. Jesus wins them to Jesus. But he uses us. We need to be aware when he uses us. Now, we're not Paul. I get that. I understand that. But we still need to understand. We need to be aware of is God using us or not using us. Paul said God's been using. He's been working. People are coming to Jesus. We praise the Lord. We don't receive the praise. But we praise the Lord. We thank the Lord. We celebrate. So here in Romans, he says, all these things the Lord has accomplished. And so in Chapter 15, verse 19, he says this, In the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit. Now, remember sermon Sunday, I mentioned that they were to wait, the apostles, till the power came from on high, and then in Acts 1, it says the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, in the power of the Spirit, these things have been accomplished. In the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the power that exists. He says, so that from Jerusalem... And round about as far as Arulicum, I have preached the gospel of Christ. So he says, I preached all over the place. No, there is no, nowhere in Acts or any of his, of his books does it tell us that he preached in Illyricum. It's a tough word to say. There are some opportunities for him to have done so. Most assume that he did it. Uh, there's a gap between leaving Ephesus in his second journey uh, and going back to Jerusalem that he may have whipped over there and done that. But he says, the here thing is I preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. Is written, they who had no news with him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. So here's what he's saying. My primary focus was to preach the gospel. You ever heard someone say, we want to be a New Testament church? I'm always curious because which one? You want to be the one at Corinth that had all those problems? You want to be the one at, at Galatians? Because the Galatian church had heresy slipping in? You want to be the one in Ephesus that struggled so much that he had to send Timothy? Which church do you want to be? Well, here's the secret to being a true New Testament church. Your passion and your purpose is one thing. To preach the gospel of Jesus. We honor God. But that is an overarching goal of humanity, period. How do we primarily honor God? We, we preach the gospel. So, you know, I, I don't think I ever had anybody here say this. I, I, I know I have, but I've had people say sometimes to me once before, you, you preach or you teach a lot of messages about being saved. And I'm like, correct. Because that's what we're here for. That's our purpose in life. It's really not complicated. Churches that take their focus off of the gospel of Jesus Christ shrivel up and die. Churches that focus on the gospel will at least reach people. 
I think I've shown this before. Do you know the number of churches in America, and this includes Baptist churches, that are declining or who are plateaued or declining? 85%. 15% of churches in America are growing. By the way, we are a part of that 15% right now. We haven't always been since we are now. What is the fundamental difference? It's not that those other churches don't love Jesus and God. They do. It's not that theology is bad. It may be, but a lot of them love God. Look at Baptist churches. All Baptist churches love Jesus, right? And, and, and I've never met a Baptist church that didn't pretty much believe the right things. It's because they forget what the focus is. Paul tells us time and time. The whole book of Romans, the reason the book of Romans is so critical and while many, to many it's the explanation of the gospel, it's because ultimately it says, you've got to focus on Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus. I've heard people try to argue with that, and I'm just like, are you crazy? Where, is you, where are you arguing with it from? Because it's all over scripture. And this is what Paul, he's concluding this letter saying, my focus is on the gospel. Now he says, I don't want to build on that man's foundation. That's why he has not yet come to Rome. And I'm going to talk about that more in just a minute by going to Rome. Paul went in pioneer areas where no one had ever been before. There are in the world today, I'm going to put Joe on the spot. So if you don't know, but you are a resident former missionary that I saw from Argentina. Unreached, unchurched people groups who have never heard the gospel, remind me the exact number. <laughs> remind me about how many. People groups in the world are around 7,000. About half. About half the people groups. Not people. But half the people groups, half the cultures in the world have never heard the gospel. They've never heard the gospel. About half. Now, we're able to shrink that number a lot more quickly these days because of technology and all these things. But just think about the pure number of people who have never heard the gospel. These cultures. And then within some cultures, there are plenty of people who have never heard the gospel. So of 7,000-something people groups, cultures, which has to do with language and, and a few other things. But language and communication is the primary thing to distinguish the culture. About half of them have never had a gospel witness. There are plenty of people left to hear Jesus. And, so, and a large number of them are actually in Mexico, by the way. They're all over in South America. They're all over the world. There are even some pockets of America, some small pockets, where the gospel has not penetrated that area. It's not very many, but there are a few. Paul says he went and he preached all over the place to people who never heard the gospel. Just think about that. Our work is never done. Now, as Baptists, we support certain things like the National Mission Board, who sends people out to help reach those, so we support that. And we, we do some things. We don't send many out there. It's hard to do, but we, we support our, 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 our National Mission Board that does that. But the thing about it is, this is the whole purpose of our existence, is to get the gospel to people, the ones we meet here, yes, here in Las Cruces, throughout the world. So Paul is laying this on them. And he says in verse 20, for this reason, I have been prevented from coming to you. Paul says, I want to come to you. But because I was busy preaching the gospel in these other areas, and because I don't build on that man's foundation. In other words, somebody had gone, it's not Peter. Peter didn't start the church in Rome. I hadn't come. Now, you know, if you ever get a chance, look up in the um, in back of your Bible. There's maps, usually. It's not sacred scripture, but some people think it is. But it's not like the books and concordance. Concordance may be, but. 
And you look over there and you can see all of Paul's journeys. And you can see how heavily he was focused in and around the Aegean Sea. You got to cross all of Greece. You got to cross the Ionian Sea or the Adriatic Sea to get to Italy. He hadn't, he hadn't been there. He said, I wanted to, but I was prevented. But now he says, with no further place for me than these regions. And since I have had for many years a longing to come to you. So he says, I've gone. To, he hasn't gone to every little nook and cranny, but he went to the major population groups. If you ever notice what Paul does, he always goes to major population areas, capitals, big cities. Uh, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus. He went to the big places, and from there they moved out. He says, I plan, he says, to go to Spain. And I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. So here's what he's saying. My goal is to get all the way to Spain. He's got a long way to go. He's going to stop in Rome. Now, what's he going to do when he stops in Rome? His goal in stopping in Rome is for them to help him get on to Spain. Now, there's some Greek terminology in there I won't bore you with. But it's the idea of you sending me, you helping me to financially support him to go. He's expecting the Romans to help him financially get to Spain so he can preach the gospel. By the way, we have no indication in Scripture, if you ever got to Spain. However, Clement of Rome, in and around 95, 96 uh, AD, shortly before he died, mentions that Paul went to the outer regions of what they call their area, which would be Spain, maybe even to England. So there's some early church tradition, some history maybe, that he got that far. Uh, when he would have done it, it's hard to say. Most likely, if you look at the end of Acts, He's released from, he's in a prison in Rome. He'll spend a couple of years there. He'll get released uh, in and around 61, 62, about 65-ish, 66, right in there, maybe 64. He's re-imprisoned in Rome. From the end of Acts to the time that he dies, he writes First and Second Timothy and Titus. Uh, he writes Second Timothy, obviously, from prison. Some feel he may have, when he got released, and just going to talk from prison, uh, when he got released from prison, He's in prison at the end of action. He got released from prison. He may have went over to Spain and preached there and then got arrested, you know, and beheaded after that in Rome by Nero. So he says, I want to go to Spain. He just, he just hadn't been it. And he says, I want to be with you and enjoy your company. But now he says, I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. One of the things, there is a, there is a thematic thread that runs through. Uh, many of the books Paul wrote, Romans, First and Second Corinthians in particular, in which he's taking up an Acts, he's taking up an offering for the church in Jerusalem. Now, before I, I read on and comment on all that, the church in Jerusalem was the the, the main, the mother church, the first church, uh, and over time, you're, you're dealing with twenty six seven years after you know, the ascension of Christ. That church was large, but it became poor and poor and poor. A variety of reasons when they go into it. So Paul was taking up this offering. He mentions it in 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. He talks about the churches in Macedonia, that the Philippians, the, uh, Philippians uh, Philippi, I mean, Thessalonica. They gave, he says, out of the depth of their poverty. They gave abundant riches. They weren't very wealthy, but they gave so much. And, and he took an offering back. To take back to the church at Jerusalem. So in other words, he took money from the Gentile, predominantly Gentile churches to go back and help 
the predominantly Jewish church so that Christians would support each other. The purpose of this was to support what happened, to support the church in Jerusalem. They had, they had supported so many churches in sending people out that they needed some help to continue, but also to foster a sense of continuity and community between Gentile believers and Jewish believers. Because there was always, in, throughout the New Testament, Acts chapter 15, you see it, uh, you see it in Galatians, there, 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 there is this underlying tension between Jewish and Gentile believers. We see it in the book of Romans. It's there. And so he was hoping that by the Gentile believers giving money to the Jewish believers, it would build a sense of community. Of, of, of oneness, of belonging, of unity. So this is what he says. For Macedonia, that is Philippi and Thessalonica, and Achaia, that is Corinth, have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. There was a debt that they have, not financial, but spiritual. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them in material things. That's what he's saying. If spiritually we owe something to the church of Jerusalem, then we ought to help them materially. Now, there's a principle in there. You can probably, we could probably discuss that. But there is a sense of us helping other churches. Especially a church we might be indebted to from a spiritual standpoint. Now, I, you know, I've not been here long enough to know if there are any churches that first lost Christus is indebted to spiritually. The history goes back 100 plus years. None of you were around, I don't think, back then to know it anyways. So if there was a, whatever church, you know, um, started here, and I know there's always people start churches on their own, but, but for a lot of churches, a lot of churches can look back and say, that church started us. That church is hurting. We need to go help that church. The mother church, listen, most people don't realize this. Churches are like people. You have a generational lifespan. Churches last about 30 years before they've got to start their new life circle over. If you don't regenerate your culture, every 25 to 30 years, you begin to decrease in numbers. You begin to die. It's just, you see it all across the board. Just like humans begin to, to, we start breaking down in life, churches do too. So churches have to have some regeneration every generation or so. Every 25, 30 years, somewhere in there. For some churches it's quicker, for some it may be a bit longer. A church can get big enough, they can put that off, put that off, put that off, but eventually if you don't regenerate yourself culturally and start reaching new people, you're going to feel the effects of that. Sometimes churches that benefited from a, from another church having started them need to go back to that church a generation later and help them somehow. It should happen. You know what we ought to always do? Help other churches. Now, especially Baptists. Now, I'm not going to help churches that are heretical. I don't want to watch them die. There are churches who need to die because they're not really churches. They're just a bunch of heretics. But when I see churches, especially evangelical churches that are struggling, or I see churches that are just starting off and I can help them, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to help them. You know why? It's semi-biblical to help other churches. It's semi-biblical. It's just one of those things you might want to do. You know what I'm going to do sometimes? Sometimes I'm going to give them some money. We're going to give them money sometimes to help. You know what we do sometimes? We're going to send someone over there to help them. 
That's about two or three staff guys. I think I'm sitting in a couple of places for a while right now. I think Barry's going somewhere in a couple of weeks. Just for one, just for one Sunday. We had a conference here the other day, and I told the guys at that conference, you ever need someone to preach? Because let's be honest, the, 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 the guys who can preach in this area are few and far between that preach worth a lick. I said, call us up. Some of our staff members will go. They'll be happy to help you out. Because that's part of our job to help churches. Some church is just starting off and needs our help. You know what I'm going to do? If everything's legit, we're going to help them. Because churches help churches. And if you don't, shame on you for not doing that. Therefore, he says, verse 20, When I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I'm going to go on by the way to, you, to you by way of Spain. Now I know when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now he's going to make it to him. But he ain't going except in chains. It is, you read in Acts, Paul gets to Rome all right. He goes in handcuffs, man, shackled for the gospel of Jesus. God gets him there. Paul knew God was going to get him to Rome. He just didn't know how. And I, I, I don't ever want to pray, God, lead me like Paul. I don't ever want to pray that way. I'm saying, God, you can lead me. Just don't do it like you did Paul. Not that last place. You know. So he says, I urge you, brothers. By the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. He's saying, pray for me. Now, we pray a lot. <laughs> we pray for missionaries around the world. But we always ought to have a few we pray for. I have ministers that I pray for. I pray for our staff. I have some guy, other guys I pray for. I don't pray enough. Um, Joe, we need to make those booklets about missionaries more available. That's my fault. You know, but when we get some more of those booklets with all those little missionaries on there and make them available so you can pray for them. But you need to pray for those guys and, and gals by name. You need to lift them up in prayer. We have them. We just need to make them available. That I may be rescued from those, he says, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. Paul knew there were those in Judea and Jerusalem who were gunning for him. Read the book of Acts. They were gunning for him and they got him. But they, didn't, couldn't, they couldn't kill him. God protected him. Pray for me, he says, for that. Now, here's the thing. Paul went, Acts 21, through Acts 21 through the, in the book of Acts. Paul ended up in Jerusalem and ended up being arrested. The Jews kept, the Jew, so here's the thing. God allowed him to be arrested, but God protected him. The Jews never could kill him. They tried about five times to find a way to kill him. But finally, the Romans took him to Rome. He went to Rome under Roman protection to preach the gospel there. It's a magnificent thing that God did. God God had everything under control. So, God answered the prayer of Paul, just not quite the way Paul thought he was going to answer it, which is always a tricky thing there. You know, God, I want you to do your will. I want you to do it your way. But it can be a little tricky at times. But Paul, Paul was protected from them. They may seem like he wasn't because they arrested him, but he was protected from them because they couldn't kill him. And God used their evil to turn about for his good. And so he said, I want to come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. He wants to come to them in joy by the will of God. But he got there by the will of God, and he still went with joy because the chains could not keep Paul's joy away. And that church there did refresh him. They comforted Paul while he was in prison. And all of that in verse 32 came to pass. He says, and he concludes the letter before he gets to the greetings. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. May the God of peace bless all of you. He gives us blessings. So here's Paul in his closing 
laying his heart out to them about his desire to come to them. And he would make it just not the way he thought. But God got him there, and Paul ministered, and he touched the lives of those people. Either way. Sometimes, sometimes God's will is not always the way we want it done. But our conforming to Christ is for God to do His will, His way. One of the hardest prayers we can make is, God, you do your will, your way, and I want to go along with it. No matter what happens. Y'all have any comments or questions y'all want to ask about this passage or anything else? Be happy to answer best I can. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, Pastor, um, um, can you expand on uh, what you mean by every, you know, every 30 years? Every generation? Every generation? Yeah, every 25, 30 years. Yeah. Cultural renewal? Now, what happens is think about uh, most churches are in neighborhoods. So the first church I ever went to in 1980 was Northside Baptist Church. And uh, now Northside Baptist Church in Northside was not in the north part of San Antonio. Thirty years before, in the 50s, during its heyday, it was in North San Antonio. Today, it's almost a dead center of Statistone. In fact, today is pretty much in the southern part if you take the San Antonio metropolitan area. Northside, it's not even called Northside anymore. So Northside Baptist Church... When I got there, the majority of its membership lived outside of this area of influence that they drove in because it was a mostly white church in a largely Hispanic area. So in a generation, it had flipped over and changed. The culture around it had become Hispanic. So at some point, in order for that church to grow, it had to do one of two things. It had to either move to where most of its people live so it could keep growing, or it had to change and reach Hispanic and Spanish-speaking people predominantly. It had to have a cultural change within the church. Now, it didn't do anything for about 20 years. And finally, they got a pastor in, and they began to reach that area. So now if you were to go to Northside Baptist Church, it's primarily Hispanic. Uh, most of the people that were there when I was the young youth minister are dead. Uh, and, and the woes that are around or now, you know, that were still there, there's a couple people who were close to my age. Well, they're my age now. So that happens. Oftentimes in a first Baptist church, it's not as pronounced because you reach a larger area. So regional churches or large, larger city churches don't deal with that as much. Most churches are not like us. They don't, they're not First Baptist. They don't reach regions like we do large parts of the city. But even we had them. We, we, we in part, when you brought me here, you brought me here to relocate you and, and to reach young people, which I told you you had to change the culture. We've had to change the culture of the church to do it. So there's a cultural change. It's, you're in a cultural change right now. This facility culturally is different than Miranda. You've had to change culturally. Um, and so most churches, if you look, if they don't do that, I, I mean, I can go down the line. Every church I've ever been to, bing, bang, boom. It had to happen at First Laredo. It had to happen at First Bridgeport. You know, it, 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 you just look at the churches. Uh, I'll give you a great example. When I started in ministry in 1980, in the Dallas area, there was a bunch of large, strong Southern Baptist churches in, around, in, in the inner area of Dallas in an area uh, called White Rock Lake. Um, in that area, well-known churches. And so in 2000, today, most of those churches don't exist. They've either been taken over or they're Hispanic or something else. 
One of those churches actually called me in 2009. It wanted to call me. I was, was going to give you a call. In the week of going to give you a call, I backed out because the thing just blew up. They had a, they had a 1,200 seat auditorium for 400 old white people. <laughs> and it was a church that was in a, an area where actually it was, it was becoming, it had become Hispanic and now it was becoming kind of what they call regentrification. Is that what they call? Where people uh, uptown, uh, you know, uh, old hippies and uh, other people come in, you know, urban and kind of, all that kind of thing. And so it was changing and they, they were going to bring me there to change all that because they realized they were in desperate trouble. And, uh, you know, it blew up. But what happened is they, it, within about four years, they don't, and that was 2009, they don't exist anymore as they were. About four years later, they went over to another church, a large church in Dallas, took them over, made it a satellite and completely changed it. Because 30 years earlier, they were one in a thousand. Actually, 20 years early, before I went, they were going to call me, they were one in a thousand. Within 20 years, they went from a thousand to 400. Then, so within a generation, they died off. Still good people, love Jesus. They have not reached the air around them. So you have to, every generation, come back and find a way to connect to the culture that you're in. You don't last forever doing the same things you always did. Never happened. Y'all know that. Y'all experienced that here. Yes, sir. Well, I don't know. I mean, we, we, but I mean, a hundred years ago, they didn't have any hymnals. You know when the Broadman hymnal came about? Some of you were alive back then. <laughs> Dr. Bullock, you remember the first Broadman hymnal? No. 1934. The first music minister, First Baptist Dallas in 19, I want to say 1919, called the first full-time music minister in Baptist history. You didn't even have them a hundred years ago. Oh, we still have hymns, but, but, you know, we put our hymns up on the theme because it's easier for you to read. Some of you admit it. It's a whole lot easier to read the hymn on that screen than to look at that book. And don't tell me you read the notes because you have no idea what those notes mean. You just read the words. And if the note goes high, you go high. If it goes low, you go low. You're flat all the time. You don't know what you're doing. Mike, Mike just bought a cart first. So when y'all come out here, the traditional service in a couple of weeks, there'll be a little cart. If you need a hymn book, they'll have a hymn book for you. You go get that hymn book, you go put it back when it's over. Don't leave it in the seat. It'll get thrown away, I promise you. So there's nothing, I mean, so stuff like that, no. Nah. I mean, you know, I mean, look at our traditional service. You know why we have a traditional service? Do you know why? Because it's an effective way for people to worship God. For some. It's not as effective in helping us reach the masses who prefer a contemporary setting. You know why I promise you that as long as I'm pastor, you have a traditional service. It's not to make you happy. You should know by now that's not it. It's because I recognize that people worship the Lord more effectively. Some do in a traditional environment. So you're going to have a traditional setting. You're going to have Mike stand here and he's going to lead you. You're going to have a choir on risers back there. You're going to have an organ. The organ's coming to play. It might, I wasn't going to, but Mike convinced me the organ needed to come because we strive for excellence. In everything we do, we strive for excellence. Everything we do, we strive for excellence. And Mike, a, a convincing argument that in order to have excellence, the organ needed to come. So the organ's coming. It's going to be back there, but it's still coming. Why is that? To make you happy? No, because it's, some of you worship God, and our primary responsibility is to honor the Lord. 
you worship God more effectively in that environment. Listen, everything in this room is to help us honor God. All this helps us honor God in a contemporary setting. So these screens. Now what we're going to do for the traditional is we're not going to say we're throwing that away. We're going to say we're going to do everything we can. So you're going to have Mike up here leading. And you're going to have choir on license. So it'll be a little bit different. You're going to have to walk up the ramp. Hopefully some of you will learn to walk quicker. <laughs> Mike told me they're walking up the ramp. I said, Mike, you're going to have to start 10 minutes before the service begins to get some of them up here. But listen to me now. You're going to honor God because that's the way you honor God best. And we're not taking that away from We're not stopping that. But listen. We had 1,100 people on this campus Sunday. They honored God a little bit easier through a more contemporary. That's the generational change. Now, because we're First Baptist, we can do both. You know that, right? Not every church can do both. We're First Baptist Church. We act like one. We act like, when you're First Baptist Church, you know what you do? I told you, you act like a First Baptist Church. You don't act like the Second Baptist Church. You don't act like the so-and-so street Baptist church. You act like First Baptist Church. So what First Baptist Church will do? First Baptist Church can have two completely different services with two completely different people leading them. Because that's our responsibility. And we're going to have that. And everything to do with worship, though, is going to do one thing. Honor God. If it doesn't honor God, we're not doing it. As long as I'm your pastor, we will honor God. And if it doesn't help us honor God, we don't do it. Troy, you have something? We're having Sunday school. I promise you we have Sunday school. People say pastors doing away with Sunday school. No, I'm not. Garbage people come up with. They come up with the dumbest things. You're having Sunday school. You're going to have it down at DACC. That's a little different. Until we get phase two built, and we're working on it, because Sunday night we're going to vote on a phase two committee, so we can get try to start getting stuff done. Now, some of you want to come up with three or four million dollars, it'll help a whole lot faster. Five or six. But three will get it started. Tom, you got three on you. Be happy, brother. You're going to have something. Here's the thing. You know why? Because you know what the purpose of Sunday school is? We're just going to have a little church light. The purpose, listen, not to boast, I received awards for Sunday school growth when I was at Park Hills because I had one of the fastest growing Sunday schools in America as associate pastor. The purpose of Sunday school is to reach people. You reach them through Bible study. And here's what I know. Some of you are more effective in reaching other folks for, for Christ through a traditional Sunday school. So we'll have traditional Sunday school. We have traditional Sunday school here. We have a traditional Sunday school class. You lead one at 8.30. You lead one at 11. Eric Aragon leads one at 9.40. And sometimes Josh teaches. They float out. But we have traditional Sunday school. But some of you, so you're going to have Sunday school. It's just going to be done differently. And you know what? You're going to have coffee. We spent four hours in staff meeting discussing how you're going to get coffee and how much you're going to have and whether you're going to have regular decaf or whatever. Good golly, wasted my time like there was nothing else we had to do. But why? To make you happy? No. Here's why. Because we understand as the First Baptist Church, we can effectively reach people with Sunday school, then we're going to have Sunday school. And when the knuckleheads tell you we're not, they're full of it. We are. I'm as blunt as blunt can be. I've never lied to you. You're going to have it. Not to make you happy, 
But because we honor God and we reach people for Jesus in everything we do does that. So you ask an excellent question, Richard, and it's an important question. The reason you change generationally is so you can reach the lost. And if you don't change generationally, or at least adjust, you won't reach lost people. You can still honor God, but you're going to die honoring Him because you're not reaching anybody. That's the way it's going to be. And you have my word. As long as I can live and breathe as your pastor, our priorities honor God and to reach people for Jesus. And anything that comes in the way of that ain't going to happen. It just flat ain't going to happen. So that's an excellent question. I'm glad you asked it. Because you need to have confidence. That is exactly what we're doing. Next question. I might preach. That's a pretty good sermon I just whipped out there. I could go more than 30 minutes. I just don't. Troy does. Troy, I told Troy. Troy's preaching Sunday at Miranda. You got 30 minutes, Troy. And then they're turning the lights off. He goes over 30 minutes, let us know. Barry will let me know. He'll be texting the whole time. Troy went over 30. Troy went over 30. Troy's at 40 minutes. So. Any other questions? Y'all are dismissed. God bless you.